grab your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, as we get into part two of our look at the Trinity, I wanted to pick a Trinitarian verse to get us started off with tonight. Second Corinthians 13, and if you're able to stand as we read the scripture tonight, the Bible says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And let's pray. Our Father, bless our study tonight. Make yourself known to us. Help us to understand the great mystery of the triune Godhead, Lord, and to be in awe and wonder at your beauty, your majesty. You are a God beyond our wildest comprehensions. You are greater, far greater than we are, separate from us. We are your creation, and we seek to know you tonight. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We ask your blessing on the message now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This is topical, but I wanted to choose a, a verse that we could start with and mention the, the Godhead. We're back into our study tonight of the Trinity. Last week we looked at a lot of bad analogies for the Trinity. The basic rule is don't use analogies for the Trinity. Um, it's so common. I, I grew up in church, people doing that, and you know, say, well, we've got to make kids understand it. Adults don't understand it. And that's okay. Again, we're not called to fully understand. We're called to believe. We're called to accept God's revelation of himself. I can't understand a lot of things in the Bible. I don't understand election. I don't understand free will and where all the intersects. I don't understand all of that. I, I believe what God has revealed, but I don't understand it. That's okay. Um, we have this idea that we need to understand everything fully if we're going to explain it to the world. You know, I, I've told people before, witnessing to them, they'll get me into a question I can't answer. They'll say, aha, I got you. I said, my not knowing the answer doesn't mean you're right. It just means I'm a, I'm a human. I'm, I'm a man. I'm limited in my knowledge. And that's okay. It doesn't bother me. I'm okay to admit that. But there are no good analogies for the Trinity. Anything you compare the Trinity to will be a lesser thing than the Trinity itself. And it always leads to heresy. It always leads to a bad understanding. Listen, I'd rather people have no understanding of God than a bad understanding of God. Okay, let's, let's put it that way. God will reveal himself to people. If we have to use bad analogies to describe the Trinity, just don't describe it. Let the Bible describe it. Let them understand it from the scriptures. We also looked last week at proof texts that are commonly used against it. And tonight we're going to do more of a what is this doctrine as opposed to what is it not. Last week was more of a what is it not. This week is a more of a what is it. So I'm going to start by defining the ontological and the economic trinity. When we discuss the trinity, we need to understand the difference between what is called the ontological versus the eco uh, economic trinity. The ontological... Uh, let me not get ahead of myself... Ontology is the study of being, okay? When I talk about the ontological trinity, I'm talking about the trinity in itself without regard to creation and redemption. 
In the Trinity, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are together one being. When I speak of the economic trinity, on the other hand, I'm speaking of the activity of God and the roles of the three persons with regard to creation and redemption. Speaking of the ontological trinity, the three persons are distinguished by their personal properties. Let's define these personal properties. It is proper to the Father to beget the Son, and to the Son to be begotten of the Father, and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. With regard to the economic trinity, we distinguish among the three persons of the Godhead in terms of their roles in creation and redemption. It is the Father who sends the Son into the world. It is the Son who acquires our redemption on the cross. It is the Spirit who applies the work of the Son to us in the moment of our salvation. We do not have three gods. We have one God in three persons. And the three persons are distinguished in the economy of redemption in terms of what they do. This doesn't mean that one is better than another. For example, the Father is not better than the Son. The Spirit is not lesser than the Father. All three members of the Godhead are working, to, working distinct roles in order to bring about the same thing, the glorification of the one true God. And one day, I believe, we'll behold all three together and worship the triune God. Having laid a foundation, it's time to ask, what is biblical Trinitarianism? I'm going to give you the points today of biblical Trinitarianism. Uh, there is an unbiblical one. Um, we get the Trinity mixed up a lot in our day and age. We don't understand it at all, and we follow traditions, and so we, we get in some very weird situations. I mentioned last week about the way we pray sometimes. We get the members of the Trinity mixed up in our prayers. Um, even our songs. I appreciate the brother changing the word in the songs because it's not the, it's not Jesus who came into our heart. It's the Spirit that came into our heart, right? Yes. We were we were uh, spying on churches last night. My wife and I. I call it that. We 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 find preachers we know personally, and we drop in on their live stream just to see what they're doing, what kind of heresy they're cooking up. And and uh, one of them was a the former pastor of ours, and uh, he was leading the choir in a song that was just. Terrible, terrible song. Um, if you like the song, I apologize in advance, but it's called To Rescue a Sinner Like Me. You guys ever heard that song? Don't. <laughs> Don't. One of the verses, say, or one of the chorus says, He abandoned his throne and his kingdom above to rescue a sinner like me. So I told my wife, we're sitting there, I said, They have no understanding of the divine nature of Jesus. He didn't leave his throne empty and become a man. He took to himself a human nature. His divine nature never ceased. So in a sense, as I mentioned, in one sense, Jesus actually never left heaven because his divine nature was there the entire time that he was physically on earth. The same way that today Jesus is physically seated on a throne but if he wanted to, he could appear in a dream or a vision here on earth. Now, it's not the physical Jesus. That's his divine nature. When he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he didn't physically get up and descend bodily down to Damascus Road. It was his divine nature. Because in his divine nature, he can be in more than one place at a time. Trust me. When Jesus was on earth, he, he set aside some of the prerogatives of his nature, but he didn't abandon his nature. 
And we're listening to that song, and I'm like, this is amazing. We're doing this Doctrine of the Trinity thing right now, because these people have no idea what they're talking about. It's so important that we understand that Jesus is more than one nature. He is a man, a human, and he is divine. And one doesn't preclude that he didn't stop being divine to be a man. He, is, he didn't stop being a man, now he's divine again. He has always existed. This pulpit is really slanted, so things slide. He has always existed in his divine nature. When he was on earth, he didn't stop existing in his divine nature. And he took to himself a human nature. So Jesus didn't lose anything in the incarnation. He added to himself. He didn't take away from himself. So if you, if you listen, especially to songs, you'll catch songs that completely mess up the Trinity. And it's important we watch out because I grew up hearing these songs and think you start, you start thinking this way because you always hear it. And our worship should be mindful. We should worship in truth. If a song isn't true, we shouldn't say it. Notice last week we sang, and can it be? You know why I changed that verse? What's that verse? You know all the heresy. What is it? What's that line? Emptied himself of all but love. Jesus emptied himself of nothing. He didn't empty himself of his divine nature. So we changed it to humbled himself. That's it. Humble and empty are two different things. He humbled himself. He was still fully God. I heard a preacher say the other day, Jesus set aside his godness to become a man. Baloney. He didn't set anything aside. He added to himself. He didn't subtract from himself. And we need to understand this because there's a lot of bad theology out there. If we don't catch it, we're going to miss it. And it's going to, it sounds good, right? I mentioned last week, there are church websites that have, you go to the doctrinal statement, it says, we believe in the Trinity. Like, oh, that's good. We believe in one God who exists in three personalities. Personalities, somebody just reading that casually, I think, okay, persons. That's not what they mean. That's modalism, right? They believe that he's God the Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in the Gospels, the Spirit in the book of Acts, and he's playing different roles, different per- he's got a personality disorder. That's not what's going on. So we've got to be very, very careful. So when I say Trinitarianism, I mean biblical. We need to have a biblical view of what the Trinity is and what it is not. So let's start tonight with a tri- with Trinitarianism affirms there is only one God. Turn to uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, 5. You can be a monotheist without being a Trinitarian. Jews and Muslims are uh, examples of that, but you cannot be a biblical Trinitarian without being a monotheist. A lot of Christians today, with the lack of teaching on the Trinity, are just pretty much functioning monotheists, not Trinitarians. And that's a shame. Deuteronomy 6.5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jehovah God is the one true and living God. There is no being in the universe that can compare to him. There's a passage in Isaiah I would encourage you to read. We don't have time, obviously, tonight. It's known as the trial of the false gods. The true God puts the false gods on trial 
It's found in Isaiah chapter 40 through 48. Uh, if you have a chance to get home, read those chapters, 40 through 48. Who can compare with our God? Nobody. Who can do what he can do? Nobody. He is self-existing, eternally existing. I am that I am. That's another thing I, I mentioned uh, last week, the first John 5, 7. I love the, about the King James is it still says, I am what I am. You read some of the modern versions, they translate it as, I am who I am. But to me, that takes away from God. You know why? Because I am who I am. I am Rick. You are who you are. But what God said there is, I am that I am. In other words, I eternally, I'm self-existing. I just exist. I am that I am. We say, we think, therefore we are. God says, I just am. I just am. I love that statement. Our God is eternal and self-existing. See, what was God doing before we were created? Well, the problem with before and doing is that that implies time, and there was no time until God created our universe. It's it's kind of dicey with that question, but what was God doing before the earth is he was in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship. Don't believe people when they say that God created us because he needed someone to love him. No, he didn't. Well, he needed someone to worship him. No, he didn't. Well, he needed something from him. No, he didn't. He created us for his glory. So he would be glorified in the making of us. That's why he made us. He didn't need to make us. He had no need. We give nothing to God he didn't already have. You realize that if we weren't praising God, if we didn't exist, God would still be glorious without us telling him so? So we affirm there's only one living and true God. Secondly, Trinitarianism affirms three distinct persons are described as God either by name or attribute. We're going to do a lot of turning tonight, so have your turning fingers ready tonight. The Father seems to be universally recognized as God, but the Son and the Spirit are often denied divine identity. While we acknowledge there is one God, Jehovah, the name of God is applied to more than one distinct person as well as the title of God. Lewis Perry Schaefer said a distinct and extensive proof that Christ is Jehovah is to be seen in the New Testament title of Lord, which is applied to him upwards of a thousand times. He, uh, Jehovah is a Hebrew term, which is not brought forward into the New Testament. Its equivalent is the Greek term Kyrios, which means Lord, which title is also applied to the Father and the Spirit. It is, it is a justifiable procedure to treat the name Jehovah of the Old Testament as continued in its specific meaning into the New Testament by the name Lord or Kyrios. Such would be the natural meaning of any of many exalted declarations, Lord of all, Acts 10.36, Lord over all, Romans 10.12, Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2.8, and King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17.14 and 19.16. We see the Holy Spirit is called God in Acts chapter 5. Turn there. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. I promised you guys my notes. I didn't do it tonight because I knew some wouldn't be here tonight. I knew Jason was working. So uh, I'm going to have them printed out and on the back table on Sunday. For anybody who wants to grab them, they'll be here Sunday, next Wednesday as well. And you can grab the whole, both sermons together. 
back there, just so you'll have all of my scripture references and everything we're looking at tonight. Acts 5, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart that was not lied unto men, but unto God? He lied to the Holy Ghost. He lied to God. That's a very important point, because the Holy Spirit there is given the title of God. In addition to the name of God and the title of God, we also see many Old Testament names and activities of God applied to Christ. I don't have time to cover all of them tonight. Uh, I was looking at a list today that's quite expansive. Uh, I think we would have just have one song and no prayer time if I were to try to use them all tonight. But I did pick out some that I could show you how titles and attributes in the Old Testament of Jehovah God are given to Christ or the Spirit in the New Testament. So let's start with Psalm 68, 18. Go ahead and turn there. Psalm 68, 18. And some of these I'll just read to you because they're very short verses. And then uh, I'll have you turn to some others. Psalm 68, verse 18. The Bible says, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. This passage about God is applied to Jesus in Ephesians 4 8. I'll read that one to you. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. So the text in Psalms, which applies to God, is attributed to Jesus in the book of Ephesians. Go to Psalm 102. Psalm 102. Psalm 102 and verse 25 is where we'll be. 102.25. The Bible says, Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years have no end. Now turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. We'll see the application of this in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. The Bible says, But under the sun he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning laid the, hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as other garment, and as a vesture, Shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. The same passage in Psalm applied to Christ in the book of Hebrews. Turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. 
Isaiah 45, verse 21 is where we'll start. Isaiah 45, 21. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God, no God else beside me. By the way, that's a good verse for the Mormons right there. There's no God else beside me. They think there's thousands of gods. They'll become gods themselves one day. There's no God beside him. A just God and a Savior, there is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. I have sworn by myself, the, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and I shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Of course, I'll read you the passage in the New Testament. We all know it. Psalm 2, verse 10 to 11, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A passage very clearly attributed to Jehovah God in Isaiah 45, attributed to Christ in the New Testament. Look down, you should still be in Isaiah 45, look at verse 21. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from, the, from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. So what God's telling them here is, besides me, there's no Savior. Luke 2.11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jehovah says, besides me, there is no Savior. Oh, by the way, shepherds, in the city of David is born a Savior. Who's that Savior? Jehovah God. It shows that Jesus shares all the divine attributes of Jehovah God. We can go on like this with several dozen other passages. For the sake of time, I'll stop there. Jesus is not God taking on a different role at a different time in history. He's not. But he shares in the one being, the one substance of God. The Spirit is not just Jesus playing another part. He's not an actor. If you remember the old, uh, if you ever watched like history stuff of the old Shakespearean plays, they'd have the masks on the stick and they put a, a mask on. So you, you play multiple parts. You put this mask on, you put this mask on and this mask on. That's not what God's doing. That's not what God's doing. They are distinct persons who share one being, one essence, one substance. We see the distinction of the persons in the baptism of Jesus, where the three members of the Godhead are present. Jesus is in the water bodily. The Spirit descends upon him visibly. And the voice of the Father is heard from heaven. Jesus is not a ventriloquist throwing his voice. There was a divine person in heaven speaking down to those on the earth. When the Spirit lighted upon Jesus, it was a divine person coming down and landing upon him. And Jesus in the water, in his human form, in his human body, was fully divine himself. We see it also in the Mount of Transfiguration, don't we? Jesus is there in physical form, transfigured before them. And the voice of the Father from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Again, that's not Jesus and his ventriloquism talent. It's a separate and distinct person from Jesus, though sharing one substance together. Number three, 
Trinitarianism affirms the three distinct persons are co-eternal and co-equal. I want to read you a portion of the, of the Athanasian creed. creed, creed. Uh, Athanasius was an early church Christian who lived during a time of, I guess you'd call it the triumph of Arianism. Arianism had taken over much of the Christian world and much of the churches. If you remember, I mentioned last time, Arius was the heretic who was condemned to the Council of Nicaea, who had been teaching that Jesus was a created angel of a different substance than the Father. And over time, his doctrine took hold and conquered much of the churches. And so there's a, there's a, a term, if you look at church history, it's called Athanasius against the world. It was, he was one of the few people to stand firm for the doctrine of the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed reads this way, We worship one God and Trinity, and in and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also there are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty, and yet they are not three almighties, but one Almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so we are forbidden to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, and one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another, none is greater or less than another, but the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. I thought that was beautiful. What a great description of our God. We know the famous verse in John chapter 1, verse 1, where we read the Word who is Jesus. We know that from verse 14, don't we? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He said, who's this Word? Verse 14 says, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jehovah's Witnesses will retranslate that. They say, well, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was a God. The problem is that A didn't appear anywhere in church history until about the 1960s when they first translated their Bible. Isn't that funny? Everybody missed it all throughout church history. Even there, there isn't an ancient copy of the Scriptures anywhere. There's some 24,000 ancient copies, ancient manuscripts, portions of Scripture. That A doesn't appear anywhere until 1962, I believe. Be aware of things that are new, by the way. Nothing should be new. Everything should be old. We might newly discover something in the Bible, 
But when someone comes and says, I've got this new interpretation, you ask them, so you have an interpretation that nobody else in the church history has gotten. Now, there are obscure, uh, there are things I believe that modern scholars wouldn't agree with me, but the old dead guys tend to agree with me on. But when you have someone who says, you know what, no one's ever believed this before, run. Run, okay? Because there's nothing new in the scriptures. Anyways, so we know that the word existed in the beginning with God. We know that from John 1, 3, he created all things. In fact, it says, by him was not anything made that was made. Well, now we have a problem. If Jesus is a created angel, it says there's nothing made that he didn't make. How did he make himself? And if he has the power to create himself, is he not then by the virtue of that God? <laughs> there's a problem there. It doesn't make any sense. Micah 5.2 says he is from of old, of everlasting. That means from all eternity. Speaking of Christ, who is be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Consider tonight the words of Jesus in his high priestly prayer. Turn to John 17. John 17. John 17, verse 4 is where we'll start. Verse 4. The Bible says, or Jesus said in this passage, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. Isn't that funny? In the book of Isaiah, I should have written the passage down. Jehovah God says, I don't share my glory with another you know why? Because Jesus isn't another. He's of the same substance with the Father. Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before the world was, Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit shared the same being, the same glory, the same divine attributes. We see in Genesis 1-2 that the Spirit took part in Creation. It says the Spirit moved upon the, the waters. It brought order out of chaos. He brought order out of chaos, I should say. If the Spirit was there at the moment of creation, then did He not also pre-exist the creation? Of course He did. Number four, Trinitarianism affirms the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. The deity of the Son is affirmed throughout the New Testament. Then we have the famous one where Jesus calls Himself the I Am. Turn to John chapter 8. We know the I am who appeared to Moses was Jehovah God. John 8. John chapter 8, verse 56. The Bible says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. I am the one who's talked to Moses. I am the one who talked to Abraham. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I told you we'd be turning a lot tonight. I got a lot more before we're done, too. 
I'm hoping to finish it tonight. I don't know. I'm in one of those awkward positions as a preacher where I brought too much sermon. And if I cut it off, I may not have enough next week to fill a full sermon. If I go with it today, it may go way too long. I don't know. We might be here till work time tomorrow. So There's just so much to cover. I don't know what to cut out of this. But Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now Jesus uses this passage and applies it to himself. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Verse 63, Matthew 26, 63. The Bible says, But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven, and the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. The Jewish leaders accused him of blasphemy because they knew immediately he was applying Daniel 7 to himself, that he was that son of man who was given a kingdom by the Ancient of Days. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is an important passage of the deity of Christ that we often overlook because it's not quite as obvious in the English language, but that's okay, we'll get through it. 1 Peter chapter 3 is a very important passage, I think. <coughs> 1 Peter 3.14 But, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Peter's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. Let me read you that real quick. Don't turn there, but Isaiah 8, 12. Say ye not a confederacy to all them whom, to whom this people shall say a confederacy. Neither fear ye their fear, nor be afraid. Sanctify the Lord of hosts, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. The word Lord in that passage is all capitals, which is a substitute for the name Jehovah. It's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the Hebrew name of God transliterated in four letters as Y-H-W-H or J-H-V-H, pronounced either Jehovah or Yahweh. Keep in mind that Isaiah uses this as a reference to Jehovah God. Now look at Peter's use of the same passage. This is significant when you compare the word order in Greek between Peter and the Septuagint's reading, uh, a rendering of Isaiah, the Hebrew says, Sanctify Jehovah of hosts. The Greek Septuagint reads, Sanctify ye the Lord himself, speaking of Jehovah. Peter, writing in Greek, would normally quote from the Septuagint, since that was the commonly used translation of the Hebrew Bible. Peter's translation is almost identical, but he exchanges the word himself 
and renders it Lord, but the Christ sanctify. So let me make sense of this. Peter uses Christ in this reference to a passage from the Old Testament, speaking of Jehovah God. Whereas in the Old Testament it says, sanctify Jehovah as God in your hearts. Peter's saying, sanctify Christ as God in your hearts. That's what he's saying. Very important passage. Sanctify Christ as God in your hearts, or treat Christ as God in your hearts. I can go on. We don't have time, obviously. But throughout the New Testament, we find references to the deity and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number five, Trinitarianism affirms the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Many religions, like the Watchtower, teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person, but an impersonal force. They'll use references to him being poured out on Pentecost. You don't pour out a person, you pour out a, a liquid, you pour out a, a force. Well, he is a person, but he's also a spirit. I think you have to take both into account. The Bible, as I mentioned earlier, calls the Spirit of God, in, or the Spirit God in Acts chapter 5. We know the Spirit was present on the day of creation and took part in the act of creation. Turn to Matthew 28, verse 19. You, you know it, but turn there anyways. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We all know this one. Famous verse. The Great Commission passage. The Bible says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Notice, first of all, that they are to baptize in the name, name, singular. Not names of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Not names as if there are three separate beings or three separate gods, but they are, they are three persons sharing one being, one essence, one nature, one substance. Secondly, notice that we are to be baptized in the name of the Holy Ghost. He has a name. An impersonal force doesn't have a name. Persons have names. Persons have names. He is a person as much as the Father or the Son. In fact, if he was lesser than the Father and the Son, why would he be equally mentioned in the passage? Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are to be baptized in the name of an impersonal force, but a person. Go to John 14. John 14. John tells us a lot about the person of the Holy Spirit in his gospel. John 14, verse 16. Bible says, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Yes. Constantly referred to as a he and a him. In fact, if you want to make an argument back, I one time I asked a JW, there's like, He's an impersonal force. He, he's, he's not a he's, he's an it. So I went to this passage and I said, he, he, him. I said, the only it we see is the world. Maybe we're the ones who aren't real. 
We're called it. He is firmly a he and a him. That's not a mistake. Only a person is a he or a him or a she or a her. A person. Go to John 15, 26. And by the way, he dwells in us. That shows will and volition, doesn't it? If I pour water in a glass, water is an impersonal force. I can't say the water is dwelling in the glass. The water is where I put the water. It has no power but what I, what I do with it. It's not alive. It's not real. It's not a person. But the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Like he purposely dwells in us. He has a mind, a will, a volition. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. He testifies of Christ. A testimony can only be given by a conscious person, not by an impersonal force. Go to John 16, verse 7. John 16, verse 7. I see the light at the end of the tunnel. John 16, verse 7. The Bible says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. Sounds like he has a will to me. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Who do you send? You send a person. You send a person. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Again, he has a will and a distinct consciousness. He teaches us and guides us into the truth and he glorifies the Son. It takes a conscious person to teach somebody else. It takes a conscious person to deflect the glory to the Son. John 16, verse 13. Look at that one. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. It's clear the Holy Spirit has a will. Let me read you one more. First Corinthians 12, 11 says, But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. Some of the gifts of the Spirit. He distributes them as he will. A force doesn't have a will. A person has a will. Let's talk about the Trinity in heaven. This comes up a lot. Will we see the Trinity in heaven? Will we only see Jesus or will we see the whole Trinity? This is one of those I mentioned earlier. A modern consensus probably wouldn't agree with me, but I, I do find some old dead guys in history who agree with me, and I appreciate that. The majority of teaching in the evangelical world is that we will only see one person of the Godhead in heaven. I may be wrong on this. I'm open to biblical correction, but I believe we can make a case from the Bible that we'll see all three members of the Godhead in heaven in some way. Now, God the Father does not have a physical body like Jesus has. I understand all that. I'm not saying we're going to see an old man seated on a chair. It's not what I'm saying. Again, I want you to make sure you hear what I do say, not what I don't say. I'm not saying that. 
But I do believe we will see a visible manifestation of the Father and the Spirit in heaven. I think I can share that biblically to you tonight. Let me show you a few verses that we commonly use to teach. We'll only see Jesus in heaven. Go to Colossians 1.15. Colossians 1.15. The verses are real verses, but they are, I think they're used out of context. Colossians 1.15. Speaking of Jesus, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? Now, looking at the verse, you need to consider it in its context. Paul was battling Gnosticism in Colossians, which taught that the flesh was inherently evil. God could not have had a physical body, therefore he only appeared to be human. Uh, God had not been seen before he appeared in the flesh. He's invisible. He's a spirit. At one point in history, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all three spirit only. It's Jesus who at a point in time took to himself human flesh. This is not a statement that he will, ne that he will always be all we ever see of God. This verse is in line with Hebrews 1 where he's called the exact imprint of the nature of God. You have to keep in mind the context of Colossians. Look at Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. Says, for in him, it's in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This has the exact same context. It's not saying Jesus is all we'll see. It's saying that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelled, or that Jesus is fully God in human flesh. Again, he was battling Gnostics, who denied that Jesus had a physical body. Turn to 1 Timothy 6.16. 1 Timothy 6.16. This is the last of the negative verses, and I'll show you some of the positive verses. And then we'll be done, I promise. First Timothy 6, verse 16. This is speaking of Jesus again. Who only hath immortality, or speaking of, of God, I'm sorry. Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And people say, well, there you go. No man can, can look on God the Father. No man has seen or can see. Yeah, That's true. That's true. For men outside of Christ. The redeemed are in Christ. And in Christ, we are treated by the Father the same as the Son. If the Son can behold the Father, we in heaven can behold the Father. Because we are loved the same. By the way, we are sinless. So we're too sinful. I was reading a website today trying to look at arguments against my position. And we're just, we're, even when we're redeemed, we're still sinful creatures. No, we're not. We are fully redeemed by the blood of Christ. We have the righteousness of Jesus. If we have his righteousness, there's no vestige of sin in us. There is no reason. If the Son can be in the Father's presence, we can be in the Father's presence. Has to be. Or we don't really have his righteousness. We have a, a lesser righteousness. That's a problem, doctrinally speaking. The redeemed are in Christ, treated by the Father like the Son. They are sinless as Christ is sinless. So his righteousness being given to them gives him the right to look upon the Father. It's true that even the heavenly creatures cover their faces before the glory of the Father. 
but they are not united to the Son, nor do they have his righteousness. Their sinlessness is not the same as righteousness. We've got to distinguish that. Adam and Eve were not sinless. They were innocent. Christ was sinless. Does that make, make, make sense? They didn't know good and evil. They just hadn't done evil yet. They were innocent, but they weren't sinless in the sense of Christ, who knew what sin was and chose not to sin. He was sinless. Angels are not sinless. They are in a state of innocence. We in heaven, those in heaven today, are sinless before the Father because they have the righteousness of Christ. An absence of sin is not what righteousness is. Righteousness is an active righteousness. Christ was not just, not only did he not sin, but he actively was righteous. And so he's given us his righteousness. That's what we have today in our salvation. Let me move on. Positive case. Revelation 22.4, go there. Why do I believe we'll see all three members in heaven? Revelation 22.4. The Bible says, They shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. See, the face of who? The face of God. Say, well, could that be just Jesus? I guess it could be. The term face here, I'm not saying the Father has a body and a face like the Son has. The term face here really just denotes personal. There's a personal connection, a personal relationship between them. If we aren't allowed to look upon the Father, there's no personal relationship between us, by the way. Look back at Revelation 22, verse 3. We see that the throne of God and of the Lamb are in the city. The word and is very important there. The throne of God, the Father, and the throne of the Lamb are in the city. And there shall be no more curse, for the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. I love that again, that Trinitarianism. Two thrones, one person, or one being being served. Didn't you love that? The throne of the Lamb, the throne of the Father, and his servants will serve him. He and him are Singular. Why? Because whether you serve the Father, you serve the Son, you serve the Spirit, you're serving God. We get other heavenly scenes in the Bible as well, which speak of more than one person being visible in heaven. I mentioned you earlier, Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. What is Daniel seeing? He's seeing more than one person in the vision. We see it again in Revelation. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. Revelation 4, verse 2. This is actually a, a worship scene in heaven where the redeemed are worshiping. Revelation 4, verse 2. John says, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. By the way, this is God, the father he's describing because the son comes into the vision later. 
one and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow around around about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. This is, to my knowledge, the only description of God the Father we have, and as much as we can comprehend in these bodies. He has no physical body, and so the description of him is vague. You understand that what I'm saying is we, we can't comprehend what the glory of God looks like in heaven. So John's like, he was like this, like this. He's trying to find things like, like this, like this. He's finding these precious stones that we can relate to. He's kind of like this, not quite, but he's like this, but like this. We can't fully comprehend, but he did see something that he's describing. All John does in describing God the Father is give likenesses, because I'm pretty sure no human words could adequately describe what he was seeing. Look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So we have the person on the throne, like unto a jasper and a stone and this and that. And then separate from him, before the throne, is the spirit. He's called seven spirits because seven is the number of completion. John was seeing the fullness of the Holy Spirit before the throne, but separate and distinct from the one who was on the throne. Do you see that? Go to chapter 5, verse 6. Here comes Jesus into the picture. Again, separate and distinct. Chapter 5, verse 6. I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Who's sitting upon the throne? The Father. Who's the Lamb? The Son. And he's kind of anthropomorphizing. To, I don't think the Father has a hand, like I have a hand. But the Father on the throne in that glory that he was seeing was in some way holding a book that the lamb came up and approached him and took the book out of his hand. This is more than one person being seen in this vision. We see the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, all three visible, all three distinct, yet all three worshipped as God. And don't miss the beauty of that. Look at verse, verse four, uh, 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Well, there's this distinction there, isn't there? Forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever. And say, which one do they worship? Both. They're one God. Him. Him. Just like in Revelation 22. The throne of God and the Lamb. And his servants will serve him. It's not a hill I would die on. If you say, oh, pastor, I'm still not convinced. I don't think we'll see all of them. I'm not going to hate you for that. 
I'm just making a case from the Scripture of what I think the Scripture teaches. I think it's glorious. I look forward to it. If I get there and find out I only see Jesus, I won't be disappointed, I promise you. But I look forward to beholding all three members of the Godhead and worshiping Him in His fullness one day. That being said, let me wrap this up. I don't pretend to understand every aspect of the Trinity, but I believe it benefits us to have a working knowledge of it. It's part of knowing God and loving God. And I hope this study stirs you to a deeper desire to know and to love our God. The more we learn of God, the more we should stand in holy awe and just say, wow, wow. The more we learn of him, the more we should be driven to love him, to forsake our sin, and to seek his holiness. I hope that has helped some tonight. Before I close, is there any questions or comments, uh, corrections? I'm open to corrections. Just make it biblical. Comments, nothing. Wonderful. Okay. I'll have all the uh, transcripts uh, on Sunday on the back table. Feel free to grab one. It's going to be kind of hefty. This was 11 pages, and the other one was 9 pages. So it's going to be a little bit hefty. But it's got all of my notes, all of my quotes, all of my scriptures uh, for you to take home and study yourselves. Don't stop looking at this. It's such an important doctrine. We need to understand who God is. And I promise you, you won't. <laughs> the deeper you dive into the Trinity, the more confused you'll get. And that's okay. That just means that God is greater than you or I can comprehend. That's why he's God. That's why he's God. We're going to spend eternity uncovering the greatness of our God. We should start now in this life. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. I thank you for your word. I hope I've been honest with it. And to the best of my knowledge, I have been. Lord, we seek to know you, to love you. To know you is to love you. You are magnificent, transcendent in your beauty, your glory, your majesty. You deserve more than we can give you. You need nothing from us. You give us everything. And right now, I believe, as we saw in Revelation, there are angels innumerable and saints along with them. Thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands who right now, with a loud voice, are singing your praises. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Our pitiful worship here in the trials and busyness of our lives cannot compare to the noise, I'm sure, being made in the heavenlies right now. And we long to one day join that worship. We love you, Lord. We love you for who you are, not for what you've done. <clears throat> for had you given us nothing, you would still be good. We love you for who you are. We thank you for loving us in spite of who we were. For joining us to your son. For giving us his righteousness. <clears throat> for giving him our sin. God made him to be sin for us. Who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. And we thank you for that. Bless us now as we dismiss in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.